0: Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Hiring a new attorney for your firm isn't always easy. You check out their resume, do a background check, but are there things you still may be missing? And more importantly, can it get your firm into hot water? Senior reporter Jody Godoy joins us later in the show to talk about the perils of lateral hiring, and she's going to bring one example of an attorney who engaged in illegal conduct but still got hired by a new firm. We'll also be joined by Carrie Ben, who will share the legal industry developments from the week. And at the end of the show, we'll discuss a bananas case in the Ninth Circuit that's some real monkey business.
1: Uh, monkey see, monkey sue will not do in federal court. <laughs>
0: Uh, as always, I'm here with my co hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
2: Hi. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we don't have a monopoly on stupid puns in legal proceedings. Uh, first
0: of all, they're great puns. Yeah. Secondly, I applaud Bill for finding the perfect clip to lead us in. Yeah. I uh, mean,
1: there a are. A teaser. There are several others that we'll eventually <laughs> hear.
0: So everybody stick around to the end because you will not want to miss this case. It's, it's yeah. a great one. Um, but what are we talking about up top, Bill?
1: Uh, so we have another big music trial taken off this week. It's Quincy Jones versus Michael Jackson. Hey, I know those guys. Yeah, you've heard of them. Yeah. Quincy Jones nominated for 79 uh, Grammys. You may, oh, may have heard of Oh, only 79. Yeah. Father yeah. of yeah. Rashida Whatever. Jones. Correct, yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> essentially here, Jones is saying he was stiffed on $30 million in royalties that he was owed for work that he did on Jackson albums. Jones uh, had a contract with Jackson for work that he did on Thriller Bad and off the wall,
0: so not important ones at all. Yeah,
1: no, little little albums. Profit. They didn't they didn't make much money. Somewhat profitable, right? Yeah.
0: Um, so this agreement worked out for a while. Well,
1: yeah. So well, so the deal gave him a. Uh, it was proportional. So if if Jackson's royalties went up, uh, uh, Jones's royalties went up, and and so forth. Um, and I'm oversimplifying it, but it's it's um, that's roughly the gist of it. And like you said, the deal worked until, according to Jones, up until Jackson's death in two thousand nine, when sort of leveraging this post this posthumous interest in in the King of Pop, uh, his estate and the company that controls his music, which is controlled by the estate, uh, according to the lawsuit, leveraged this stuff into a renegotiation of his deal with Sony, got more royalties, but didn't pass those royalties along to Jones. So that's sort of the the basis of the lawsuit
0: so um, how's the trial going I and mean, we, we basically just kicked off right
1: yeah I mean it's it's um, yeah, so opening statements were uh, Tuesday and Jones's team said that the interesting quote for me was that he uh, shifted money that the estate I'm sorry shifted money from from one pocket to the other um, using various means to sort of hide the way that revenue was coming in or sort of I guess disguise the way that revenue was coming in one of which was a joint venture with Sony they said that it sort of masked where the revenue what the revenue was said it wasn't royalties it should have been counted as royalties you see this a lot in these music royalty lawsuits that you're you were counting them under a different sort of name yeah so you mean to tell me that michael jackson's
2: untimely death was the inciting incident for yet another costly lawsuit this is crazy talk
0: we have talked on the pod before (laughs) about um a a big tax one
1: yeah I yeah. i wonder if he'll beat it um, <laughs> oh jeez! Wow. Right. Well, what the? <laughs> anyway, what, so yeah. that, uh, that
0: was bad.
2: Uh, <laughs> Whoa! Yikes. This is this is out of control. The, uh, the all right. What's what's so? We're uh, uh, John- <laughs> off the wall.
1: Whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, what can we yikes. expect as we go? As we go ahead. So uh, Jackson's team obviously sees it very differently. Um, they had to start with sort of the the weird uh, posture of saying, yes, he probably was owed a little bit more money, but yeah. some <laughs> tiny fraction of what he's asking for. They said he's seeking tens of millions of dollars, quote, that he did not earn and is not entitled to under the contract that he signed with with Jackson for those albums. Um, okay. They're saying uh, he, quote, he just wants it and hopes you'll give it to him, speaking to the jurors. And... Um, uh, sort of a pointed reference to the fact that jackson isn't there that jackson is is died in 2009 saying quote sadly you will be getting only mr jones's version here so oh, wow um that
0: sets it up pretty starkly there yeah exactly
1: um, so how long is this thing gonna go on uh th- we think three weeks ish um okay. you know give or take uh the uh, so we're gonna be following we're gonna have a uh, reporter in the courthouse um, most of the time. So stay tuned uh, with Law 360. But the key takeaway from Wednesday's dispatch, the last one we have, is um, the judge sort of admonished the the Jackson team saying that, that he was, quote, astounded by the snickering, huddling and laughing that I hear from the defendant's side <laughs> of the table. I don't know if the jury can hear what is being said, but I can.
0: It's always great when you have a judge mad on like day two or three. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, and th- they had a Fun good.
2: Fun fact: uh, the judge presiding over this case is also my high school history teacher. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> interesting.
1: He was a really talented guy. So, <laughs> um, I mean, they had a good reason for it, but it is—it's an uphill climb if you—if this sounds is the, like the very beginning of a of a <laughs> of a case. So. I'm
0: glad we're telling people to watch out now because it sounds like we're going to have a lot of really interesting stories out it
1: of this be, one. Should
0: be, yeah. Um. Alex, let's turn to you and, and what you want to talk about up top today.
2: Yeah, we're back on the exciting class action beat this week because um, federal regulators have released a very interesting rule uh, on Monday. They, they handed on this new rule that's basically going to make it easier for everyday consumers to bring class action suits uh, against banks and other financial institutions for any disputes that may arise in the use of those companies' products, so opening a banking account, uh, opening a credit card, things like that. So, um, it's, so yeah, yeah, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot at stake, as you can imagine.
0: So you said this made it easier to bring class actions, but why is that the case? How did that work?
2: I think the best way. To talk about it is just to like use an example. So if you sign up for a credit card, what you're doing is, of course, entering into a contract with the company that's giving you the credit card. And as has come up a lot of times on this podcast, uh, there's can be some very, you know, troubling stuff in the fine print of that contract. <laughs> right. Basically, much of the time, those contracts contain what's called an arbitration clause, and that is what it sounds like. It's basically the company saying, If we should run into any kind of trouble here, any kind of dispute, we would like to solve this uh, through, you know, private arbitration. We don't need to involve the courts. One on one. Yeah. Yeah. And in some cases, it's those those clauses have gone so far as to include an explicit ban on any kind of class action whatsoever, like naming that by name, like you're not allowed to do this. This new rule issued by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Aims to get around that. It says you can't include this ban on class actions anymore in your contracts.
0: So I can imagine that banks just love this.
2: No. Uh, <laughs> you're wrong about that, Amber. I, I mean, I, I think your law school professors would be a little disappointed, <laughs> they to ride. be honest. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, they're not. Uh, even in the few days that have come up, there's been a lot of rancor uh, among the financial services industry you know crying crying foul about what's gone on here and you can imagine why if they're if you open up the courtroom doors to this new you know lane of litigation for people to collectively bring action they're on the hook for quite a you know quite a substantial amount of legal fees now we can talk about whether or not they can probably afford it or things yeah. like that. But I mean, it's certainly not going to make them happy.
1: So the banks hate it, but why, you know, you know like what, what's the justification for it? Why did the CFPB want to do this? As we've discussed on the
2: podcast previously, it's all about power dynamics, right? We talked about this with Sindhu and about how it's become harder to bring class actions. And that's difficult because if you're talking about just having to, if you're just consumer X and you're having this problem with like overdraft fees in your banking account, it's probably not worth it. And it's probably pretty intimidating for you to like bring it directly to the bank and they're like, okay, well, we're gonna go to start this formal arbitration process. You can imagine somebody just being like, whoa, I this is this I'm is not gonna all, deal and, with this. They're very yeah. intimidating, right? Yeah. And it has implications for lots of things. Because I'm using the, the crude example of bank accounts and credit cards, but it's basically any consumer financial yeah. product.
0: So what else could that be?
2: We're talking about like payday loans, which are obviously very, you know, controversial thing these days, debt collection. Anything like that. And so, it's not just you know. that
1: they're using these. It's that, that they've been using them more and more and that they've been more enforced by the courts and everything else. That's right? what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, yeah it's becomes it's become hardened and
1: emboldened yeah. in there. So,
0: so is this rule just now on the books? Is this a done deal?
2: Not by a long shot. Because, as I mentioned, it was issued by the CFPB, which, importantly, is an independent watchdog agency. It is, it, is, it is intentionally meant to be sort of divorced from the politics mm-hmm. of whoever inhabits the White House at a certain time. And you have already seen congressional Republicans, financial institutions, business associations, just already saying that this must go and we have to get rid of this. The Chamber of Commerce, uh, as we talked about, already kind of rattling the litigation saber. But the first sort of immediate hurdle here will come from Congress. As I said, congressional Republicans have made their distaste known and they have the power to override this using something called the Congressional Review Act. They have under that law, they have 60 legislative days to repeal it with a simple majority in both chambers.
1: So all they have to do is get this through 60 days. I mean, does it, is it supposed to, do they think it's going to make it through in 60 days?
2: Well, as you may have heard, there's a lot going on in Congress. Oh, really? They're trying (laughs) to write a budget. They're trying to dismantle and then pass a new healthcare law. So this is basically a gambit by the CFPB to just kind of hope that this, yeah. this rule can uh, just make it this run the gauntlet here in the next couple of days. So, um I, I can't wait <laughs> to see
0: how that turns out.
2: I wouldn't I'm not a I'm not an odds maker, but uh, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. yeah,
0: all right, great. Thanks, Alex. A little later in the show, we'll be speaking with senior reporter Jody Godoy about the problems big loss facing as it looks to vet new hires.
3: But up first, a look at industry happenings with Carrie Ben and the Legal Industry Minute. Thanks, Amber. Let's kick off this week with some good news. The legal industry is on a three-month hot streak, posting its highest job total in years last month. Government figures showed the industry added 2,000 jobs in June to bring the total to more than 1.13 million legal jobs. Meanwhile, U.S.-based law firms announced a record number of mergers during the first half of 2017. Legal consultant Altman Weil reports that there were 52 U.S. law firm mergers in the first half of the year. The industry is on track to break its 2015 high watermark of 91 tie ups in a single year. Also, this week, President Trump's nominee for FBI Director Christopher Wray, a former King and Spalding partner, was in the hot seat before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Disclosures made as part of the process revealed some interesting information about his big law history. Since January 2016, Ray earned $9.2 million from his partnership share at the firm, where he worked for high-profile clients like Credit Suisse, Johnson & Johnson, Wells Fargo, and Chevron. This has been The Week in the Legal Industry.
0: There's a lot that goes into the process of hiring lateral attorneys, with many factors to consider before extending an offer. Most firms do a thorough vetting, but that doesn't mean they always find out if an attorney's engaged in improper or even illegal conduct. This week we're joined by senior white-collar reporter Jody Gadoy. She's going to walk us through a recent case where a firm didn't catch some bad acts, and we're going to get into some of the problems big law is facing as it looks to vet new hires. Jody, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So, Let's talk about the specific case that you delved into in your article. It was a former Foley and Lardner partner who was fired after he allegedly um, did some insider trading. Can you tell us a little bit more about him?
4: Right. So this guy, his name is Walter Chet Little. He's, he was fired twice. He was fired the first time when his first firm, Foley and Lardner, learned that he might be making inside trades based on client info that he learned at the firm. Mm-hmm. And then he was fired from his next firm, Bradley Arant, again in mid-May after Manhattan prosecutors said, you know, we're bringing a case against you.
0: OK, so let me just orient how this all happened. He's at Foley and they start suspecting he's done something bad. They fire him. Right. And he promptly nearly immediately runs out and he, gets a new job. Yeah,
4: I, I mean, he, he pretty much he's fired in June 2016 by Foley and Laudner And then in July, he gets a job at Bradley.
1: Sounds like a damn good lawyer to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
0: and then it takes another, basically, a year before he's actually charged, and that's when Bradley finds out. Right. So he's he's at this firm, Bradley.
4: It's a smaller firm that's got offices in the South and in D.C., and he's there for a year before the charges are filed. So you've got to think that when this firm finds out the charges have been filed against one of its partners – they're just like you know their hair is probably on fire. Well, what's
1: I mean that that that's what jumps to my mind. That what what's the damage you know for a firm like when a partner is indicted for something like this? I mean, what's the risk to well, a firm? Well, like
0: number that? one, we talk about them on a podcast, sure, so it's not right. good, right? Yeah, I mean you know you can
4: imagine that you know, all the clients of this firm now are thinking, well, gee, if this guy did allegedly did this stuff at his prior firm, what was he doing at Bradley? What was he doing with my info? Mm -hmm. I mean, we are talking about insider trading here. It's not as if he was stealing client funds or anything like that or accused of stealing client funds rather. But, um, you know, it just doesn't look good for the firm to have someone like this working on their stuff.
2: Can we let's let's back up a little bit. do you know at all? So, I mean, as we said, there was a very sort of brief time from when he was let go of Foley to when he came to Bradley. Do you know what steps Bradley took before hiring him? As far as did they do, they did, I assume they did some kind of background check or what does that entail?
4: Right. So, I was told by someone at the firm that they did do uh, their due diligence as they did, they do on every lateral. What that means, I can't tell you, mm-hmm. but I would assume that it includes stuff like looking at his, crim- any potential criminal background, which he wouldn't have had by this point. And looking at any potential disciplinary actions by the Florida Bar.
1: Does it include asking Foley and Lardner? Because that's the thing that jumps again jumps yeah. to my mind. That were they under any obligation to tell anyone? I mean, did they? What what sort of can a firm ask the previous firm when when something like this happens? And you
0: would um, imagine HR departments are calling each other up and saying, "Hey, we're." interviewing so-and-so. They were like, are
1: you in the habit
2: of hiring and firing crooks, sir or madam? <laughs> right. Anyway, so, yeah. well, and, yeah, and you can
0: just,
4: just you know, hearing that, you can imagine how awkward those conversations can <laughs> be. Well, yeah, I be. mean, that's why
2: I said it. But yeah. yeah.
4: How awkward that conversation can be. And, you know, uh, the fear perhaps on Foley and Lardner's part, and I don't know, you know, they haven't told me their, their end of the story. They, mm-hmm. They've stuck with their public statement, which is just kind of that they fired this guy. But... Um, You can imagine that if you're a firm and, you know, you find out that one of your attorneys is doing something shady or or looks like he's doing something shady and you tell the next firm where he's going to get a job or about to get a job, he he might come back and sue you. That's the problem here.
0: What would he sue for?
4: So it depends on the circumstances, but, you know, he could sue for defamation potentially Uh, Mm. if, if he or she was engaged in any kind of whistleblower activity, they could sue based on that. And if they had reason to think that they were being discriminated against by the previous firm, they could bring those kind of claims. So this is the
0: kind of thing where it seems like more and more, not just law firms, but companies just aren't answering questions when they get those HR calls from a new potential employer. Right. So what I've heard is the safe road is to kind of just say almost
4: nothing other than that. Yes, Jody Godoy worked here from X date to Y
2: date. I can confirm this line on this person's resume. Right. Right. But so
1: they shouldn't tell the next employer. But are they under any obligation to report yeah. it to maybe the bar association, or you know, at, are there ethics rules here that you know we saw this and, and we need to tell someone?
4: Right. So that was the question that really kind of after I thought, well, like who would they call? Could they could they tell the employer? No. Well, apparently they already told the the DOJ, the Department of Justice, and the Securities and Exchange Commission because mm-hmm. those cases are open now. But of course, those people aren't going to tell anything to an employer. And um, so, oh, but and
0: before you answer Bill's question, so they did tell DOJ and SEC. Are those files searchable? Could uh, the new firm have found out that nope. those were open? Well,
4: those no, are, those pick, are, you know, until yeah. the charges are filed as well, they, yeah, were they, hadn't filed yet. they were this past May. Yeah, yeah it so it's just an an referred. You know? Okay, yeah. Yeah. so
0: so now back to what Bill said. Can um, Can they find something out from the bar? Did Foley perhaps tell the Florida bar?
4: So did Foley tell the bar? That was kind of one of the questions that I looked at. And my conclusion was no, just judging by the fact that when I wrote the story a few days after the charges were filed, I contacted the Florida Bar, and they said there was no open complaint file. So if there had been a complaint or something initiated, there should have been an open complaint file. And there
2: are ethics rules that speak to this about a firm's obligation or other lawyers' obligation right, to that's like blow right. the whistle or something, right?
4: Within the Florida Bar's ethics rules, it says that any lawyer who knows that another lawyer is engaged in something shady needs to alert the proper professional authorities that means the bar
2: you can you can see where that gets a little tricky though like we don't have to go down the like down the rabbit hole of like employment law or whatever but they clearly felt like enough to can the guy but apparently maybe not enough to report him to the bar association yeah, see, this I, is, I mean i don't yeah I
4: this is where i had one employment attorney say that you know if if the firm knew what was going on y- you know he ought have been reported but uh you know where this sort of shakes out how much they knew i can't tell you
0: So if there's all these problems with this time frame where things are bubbling up through government investigators, but that's not public and you can't find it out from the bar discipline record, what can firms do?
4: It's a hard question. I mean, really, you know, you can ask the the potential attorney who's going to work for you, you know, do you have reason to think there's any complaint against you or... You know, and then if they start to ask questions like, "Well, what do you what do you mean by a complaint, or what do you mean
1: by an <laughs> yeah. investigation?"
4: Then, then what's your definition of? You, know, you can of kind of, uh. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so you're basically look like looking for, for red flags. Out. Yeah, you look I, for red flags, but I think. Someone you know, accused me of stealing, that, stealing so it's me.
2: Hard. Yeah, yeah, I That was making a stupid joke. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> the, Yeah, no, yeah. Someone accused me of stealing their sandwich out of the refrigerator, sir. I don't <laughs> right. know. Uh, no. Right,
4: yeah, you don't want to get to the point where you're scaring, scaring potential employees, <laughs> well, and, and the vast majority of lawyers are, you know. That's their stock and trade is being trustworthy people.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like we should, and like we're being a little glib or whatever, but like this is like an extraordinary sort of sequence of facts and it's not like some kind of epidemic in big law or something like that. But I mean, can you, like, have there there been any other examples that have bubbled up about stuff like this?
4: Yeah, so it's not quite an epidemic, (laughs) but there have been other cases where you had uh, attorneys or people who work at law firms abusing their, you know, inside view into the, those firms' clients in order to make some money on mm-hmm. E-Trade or wherever. Um, so it just earlier this year, there was uh, a Hunt and Williams patent attorney who was convicted at trial of mm-hmm. giving some tips out uh, on a pending Pfizer deal. Mm. Um, a couple of years ago, there was actually a, a, an attorney, an, I think it was a mergers and acquisitions attorney who had worked at multiple different big law firms who got a 12-year sentence for trading on inside information he got all the way along the way at every firm that he worked at, wow. basically. Okay. So it's yes. not unheard of. It is rare, but it just happens.
0: It just seems so unusual, and I think something firms probably aren't thinking about, because I think we live in this world now where we think everything's on the Internet, that you can do a background check, have a company, Google enough, yeah, and, and you'll find any right. bad thing Reputation about it. Reputation might
4: you know, weigh against in this t- in this uh, scenario, because you could imagine you know a big firm... They they see someone with an immaculate pedigree yeah. who's already working at another big firm, and they say, "Oh, gee." Or even if you're like a smaller or mid-sized firm like Bradley, you you see someone who's working at a bigger firm like Foley and Lardner, and you're like, "Oh, great, oh they want to get this guy. with us." Yeah, yeah. we got to get this guy. He might bring us a bunch of business, and you might kind of overlook, not not necessarily overlook, but you might. It may be possible to assume that that person has
0: a higher level of integrity than they do. So. Watch out for the red flags, law firms. Stay woke. (laughs) Stay woke out there. Stay woke. (laughs) Thanks, Jody, for bringing this to us. Thank you. Thanks, Jody. We like to end the show with something offbeat. I'm so excited to talk about this one this week. It's a bit of a ridiculous story that had the legal world buzzing about monkey selfie. What
2: Chittering, right? Or whatever. this week.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you did the monkey sounds there instead of me. But yeah, yeah. totally.
1: I like that we've kept it highbrow uh, um, 10 as, seconds in. As, as yeah. we should. Right. So,
0: um, Bill, can you tell everybody what monkey selfie is if they haven't heard of this?
1: Sure. Um... So this has been sort of sadly part of my beat for a few years now. Sadly,
0: I have assigned it to you over and over because I love
1: it. So back in 2011, uh, a nature photographer named David Slater was in Indonesia taking pictures of macaques. And uh, one of of said macaques uh, came along and uh, a curious macaque, if you will, (laughs) uh, came along and took his camera and took a selfie of it. This got out there. He put it on the internet, and
0: it became the biggest thing in the world. I mean, because it, like, it's a we have the picture up right now in in the booth. It's yeah, it's a exact, staring
1: at me. I don't actually. It's exactly I what you expect
0: decision. out of a selfie, though. It's um the monkey's got a big grin. He's if you haven't seen time. this, look it up, everybody.
2: It's like the it's one-eyed amazing. jack,
1: the one-eyed macaque, follows you wherever you go. <laughs> anyway. So a couple years later, Slater puts a book out, all of his, uh, some of his photography. Monkey selfie was one of them, which I mean, that's fine, right? I mean, it was his, uh, it was it was his camera, sure. it was his photo. Should be his, uh, you know, his right to put it in his book, right?
0: Depends on how you feel about the monkey.
1: Sounds right to me. Wrong. The monkey sued him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 2015, uh, Naruto the monkey uh, filed a copyright infringement lawsuit in California federal court against Slater. Uh,
0: Naruto is looking out for his rights
1: exactly filed on behalf of him by the people for ethical treatment of animals uh, hmm. uh, the, a friend of a next friend of, of the ape uh, was how they <laughs> how they, they they phrased it um, the mighty ape and it was also
0: a, a, a scientist person right yeah like exactly a, a primatologist uh, yeah. right or so
1: um, this was pretty clearly a, a publicity stunt to everyone who I've run in the copyright world, and it was pretty quickly dispatched by the federal judge that was hearing it. Um, sort of remarkably, PETA continued to, to uh, litigate this case and took it to the Ninth Circuit. So that's where we are now. Okay. The oral arguments were on uh, Wednesday. And it did not disappoint.
0: So we had oral arguments. What were some of the key issues that came up?
1: Yeah. So the judges were, um, you know, the the lower judge was very skeptical of PETA in their case. In the in the oh really? He didn't buy this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, the that tenor sort of came through in the Ninth Circuit panel. They were. Uh, very quick to jump on in with follow up questions. They asked a lot about sort of side issues about whether or not PETA still had could still serve as the the next friend and a few other things. But really, they got to this core issue that that and they seemed to, from the way that they were asking questions, that they seemed to sort of to agree with this central premise of the lower court's ruling um, that that there is this controlling precedent that says if an animal wants to sue. Um, it's hard to say. If that an animal out. wants to do something that's not eating. Like what? <laughs> if animal wants. If to an sue. animal wants his day in court, yeah, right. Uh, rather than just in the barn, um, they the statute that they're swimming under has to have an explicit authorization. It has to say this this law allows a cause of action for an animal for so, a beast. For, for... <laughs> so here's how the Ninth Circuit responded to that take that statement and I apply it to the Copyright Act, I don't have any clear direction from Congress under that act that they ever intended a, an animal yeah. to have any right under the act. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what he's saying is, it's not in there. Yeah, I'm shocked. Uh, I'm really shocked.
1: There is no mention of of animals in the, uh, the, the Copyright Act. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we got that firmed up. I mean... Jeez.
0: So were there any other interesting exchanges?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, the whole thing is must-see TV. <laughs> I, I implore you to go and Google the, these these uh, oral arguments. But um, there was one particularly interesting exchange between uh, the attorney for PETA and the panel. The attorney for PETA was arguing that the definition of authorship under the Copyright Act should be interpreted broadly, that it's this expansive um, uh, definition, obviously broad enough to incorporate animals, that animals are under are these authors that have standing to sue for copyright infringement. Animal
2: Farm was written by a man named George <laughs> Orwell, just, just so
1: everyone's still with me on that. Sorry, Bill, go ahead. Um, so the judge pushed back and said, well, okay, so let's look at the rest of the statute. We, If we apply the... The, there's, there's a provision in the, in the Copyright Act that talks about children when it comes to passing down a copyright. If we apply the dictionary definition of children, how can that possibly include a monkey? This is how PETA's attorney responded. And spouses in the dictionary sense under uh, US 1, uh, Section 1, said that spouses uh, reflected a man and a woman in a marriage. And that is no longer a case that one would, would, would defend. Is
0: there a similar holding by the Supreme Court that man and monkey are the same? <laughs> <laughs> How crazy would it have been if he'd been like, yes, your honor, the Supreme Court case is. See, he
2: messed up because the, the example the judge gave was about children. And all I would have said was like, yeah, kids are dumb and monkeys are dumb. <laughs> like, it, like, Look, it's, it, this is the
1: same. Yeah, right, I mean, yeah. legally speaking, children are notably dumb. That's what so I'm saying their, their <laughs> brains aren't as developed. Do we right. have to split hairs on this? All right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that was the that that was sort of the, the <laughs> takeaway here. Uh, takeaway sort of exchange. There was a lot of interesting stuff. I would highly recommend that you guys and the listener go out and it's on YouTube. You Google Ninth Circuit monkey selfie arguments, it'll pop up. Um, it's the whole thing is if you, if you're into the law, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're into animals or pictures <laughs> or whatever.
0: It's got it all. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, Bill. Yeah. That'll conclude our show for today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, guys. And Alex? It was
2: particularly fun. I thank, thank you guys. <laughs> yeah.
0: So if you want to know more about any of the legal developments we discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes.
2: Like a like a good one. I mean, it better, better be yeah. a good one. Yeah, right. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and of course, join us again next week. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest Jody Godoy. Contributing reporters this week include Evan Weinberger, Bonnie Esslinger, Matthew Gernaccia, Michael Macdonie, and Melissa Daniels. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman.
1: Uh, monkey see, monkey sue will not do in federal court.